Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, fully vaccinated Canadian citizens and permanent residents who test negative for COVID-19 will soon be exempt from the two-week quarantine on the return to Canada. We'll give you some details about that. Hamilton City Council has approved an agreement to redevelop the downtown entertainment venues. PJ Mercanti from the group is going to be joining us to discuss that. And Ontario is set to introduce legislation later today to invoke the notwithstanding clause. What exactly does that mean? Well, we'll discuss it. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about some of the news that we're hearing from Ottawa and Queen's Park when it comes to uh, easing some of the restrictions about travel across the border, certainly between here and the United States, but even traveling uh, between cities and traveling between provinces. They are all hinging on vaccinations. That's really what it comes down to. And yesterday, Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Teresa Tam said she's looking at ensuring that Canada gets close to 75% of eligible people vaccinated with both doses before she'd be comfortable advising about border restrictions. You know, if you take into account various indicators at the same time, uh, not just the vaccine targets, but 75% uh, first dose, 20% second dose, based on our modeling data, um, I think that is still going to be protective against uh, hospitals from being overwhelmed. That that was what our model looked at. Which I suppose is a reminder that not, we're not out of the woods on this whole situation. Uh, to give us some uh, perspective on this, so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Omar Khan. Dr. Khan is an assistant professor at the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and the Department of Immunology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Happy to be here. I had one of my colleagues uh, the other day talking about uh, this, and I, th- I think Dr. Tam's uh, remarks maybe put this in perspective. says, uh, here in Ontario right now, he says, we're in a race between the vaccination program and the Delta variant. Is that a- an apt description, you think? It is. One of the issues with the Delta variant in particular is that you get much better protection with two doses. So while we have a lot of people with one dose, we really need that second dose to help protection. And it's important to understand that we're not just talking about people's personal protection, but it also helps us cut down transmission to other people. So it's breaking the cycle of transmission, and this is what's helping us protect the people who won't get vaccinated, small children. So this is really where it becomes important, why two doses are mattering because of this new Delta. Is this attainable, though? I mean, Dr. Tam suggested we had 75%. I mean, for both vaccinations, uh, I, I, there's a time element to this in two. And, and, I mean, I just tried to book my second vaccine. I'm not due it until the middle of August. Uh, they won't let me do it. And I figure, hey, they say they've got lots of vaccine. I mean, shouldn't they just say, okay, let's take these barriers down and just let's roll up your sleeves, everybody? That would be ideal. Honestly, on-demand vaccination would be perfect. But if we look at the rate at which vaccines are coming in, we do know that, you know, we can hopefully, if supplies keep coming as they are, easily do 120,000 people a day. And that's really what it comes down to, the rate at which we can vaccinate everybody. And there's another element, too. We really want to make sure that people have waited, you know, one month from their first dose to their second dose. So, And, and really, we don't want them to wait that much longer because you only need about a month to get really good protective immunity from one dose against the alpha and beta variant, but then after that, you do need your second dose for something like Delta. And and really, from the immune system point of view, it does take minimum two weeks to make the first version of protection, but then another two weeks later, the month, it's actually making much better optimized protective immunity. So that's where the small month comes in. It's based solely on how your immune system works. So how 
dangerous is is this Delta variant? I mean, it, it, you know, when it's characterized like that, like it, it's coming. It's already here, I guess. But there have been some confirmed cases already, uh, and we know, that it, as, as we've been told already uh, by a number of your colleagues, uh, that it's probably more contagious, uh, more easily transmittable. And they say, well, I guess this, the, word, the jury's still out on this, that it might actually be even more dangerous to the body as well. So. Uh, how, how do we prepare for this? I mean, those of us that have only had the one dose so far, I, I guess the first line of defense is to simply do what we have supposed to be doing all along, and that's the, uh, the, the protocol about, you know, washing hands and social distancing, et cetera. That's exactly right. Washing hands, social distancing is important, and, and here's the reason why it's a concern. We look at household transmission. So Public Health England did a study. They looked at people who got one dose of either Pfizer or AstraZeneca, very similar to what we have here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And they said, even within the household, with just one vaccine, you can cut down transmission to other people in your household by almost 40%. So it's not 100%, but it's enough to help start breaking transmission. And the other issue, if it's more transmissible and spreading more quickly, you do need people vaccinated to protect it. So when it hits them, their immune system knocks it out. And if it isn't quite able to overcome it and you get a little bit sick, you still might be able to transmit, but then your vaccine is cutting down your chances of transmission. And that's the problem. If it's traveling so fast and we know two doses matter, then our only choice is to maintain distancing and wear masks until people get that full, more optimized immunity with the second dose. So with that in mind, and I'm, I'm just trying to do some number crunching here, uh, if Dr. Tam's, uh, the bar that she sets here is what we, we should be attaining, and 75 to 80%, which I think we wanted anyway, right, for some uh, semblance of herd immunity in situations like this. But, I mean, you know, we're in, almost in the middle of June right now. It's going to take weeks, if not months, to attain 75% for that, that second dose, isn't it? Right. If we can maintain the rate of dosing at at least 120,000 a day, we can conceivably get everybody their second dose in about two, uh, two to three months, probably more like three months if you know there are any hiccups. So it is conceivable, and it's completely based on getting a steady supply, and that's really what it is. So it, it's, if we get even more supply, it's even easier. But really, the only thing holding us back is the rate at which we get vaccines. With that in mind, Doctor, uh, how comfortable are you with the uh, the phasing in of the of the recovery that we're talking about? And this is in Ontario, of course, but, but this is going on on a national basis too. I mean, there's discussion now about opening the border up a little bit and this and that, and you know, patios and, and things. Are, are we going too quickly, given the fact that that Delta variant is still out there? It actually makes me really happy to see how everybody really leaned into this and are getting vaccines in their part to help, but. We really need to take a step back. We need to pause. We look at Canada. We look at our communities. But we need to take a global perspective. The virus doesn't see borders. And if we look at it from the global point of view, this has not stabilized. And this is the reason we have Delta. Because other parts of the world, it's going, it's spreading. Every time the virus replicates, it can mutate. And that mutation can be even worse. And that's how we get something like Delta. So until this is resolved as a global health issue, we are always going to be at risk. And that's really the point here. We have to take a global perspective and say that if we open things up, let's be aware, let's be completely honest with everyone, things can switch again because it's not stabilized globally. If we see another variant coming out of somewhere else and it spreads, then we might be back in a similar situation where we have to wait for an updated vaccine and we might have to 
you know, socially distanced ones again. And that's why it's super important to always look beyond our borders and see what's happening in the world, because that's the real predictor about how stable we are at home. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'd love to see the reopening. I'm, I'm, I've been working from home for the last 16 months, like a lot of other people, and yeah, I'd love to get out there. I'd like to go to a ball game. I want to watch great Canadian football. You know, all these sorts of things. But I'm watching some of the stuff, uh, the hockey playoffs, and uh, some of the other baseball games uh, south of the border, doctor. And, and you see, like you know, fifteen, twenty thousand people there, and I figured there's no way everybody there is double vaccinated. I mean, you know, are we are we going too soon, too quickly here? And and uh, there's a consequence to that, I would think. There's going to be a consequence that if you know, people aren't fully vaccinated and, and only relying on a smaller population that's fully vaccinated, that can still cause issues. Another important part we have to remember is that it takes time after your vaccine to develop optimal protection. So in that window, when your immune system is working hard, you can still get sick. You won't get as sick, but you can still get a bit sick and you can still transmit. So people also have to really remember that need time after you've been vaccinated. So this is something that a lot of people aren't factoring in. So I recognize that our friends south of the border can do all these things, but we also have to ask the question, how long has it been since you've been vaccinated? Are you actually better protected because you've given yourself enough time? And that's really another element we have to consider. So that's the other element of pushing too quickly because we really need to make sure that people, people's body had enough time to make antibodies. And you mentioned that's about a 10 to 14 day period? Yeah, it's two weeks to make the okay, first two weeks, basic version, but then a further two weeks to make the optimal version. So our body does two rounds, and that's the important thing. You want to get to the second round of the optimized antibodies. See, that, this is one of the things that I've been concerned about all along, and you know, I, I'm not so sure the government's done as clear a job as they could have about transmitting that information to the public so that we understand. You know, I don't want somebody thinking, I got my second dose yesterday, and just throwing their mask off and say, I'm free and clear now. Uh, that's that's not the case at all. As you mentioned, the, the variant is still out there, and they're, even with that second dose, they're still susceptible to it until, well, by uh, the numbers you've just given us, about, about a month after you get that second dose, then it, I guess you, you're still not bulletproof, but you're in a lot better shape than you would be yeah that's right so we really want to make sure that that message gets out so you know remember this isn't anything controversial this is just standard immunology this is how we've known your body works for you know decades and decades this is just regular science and that tells us these are the timelines you mentioned something very interesting i wanted to, to maybe touch on that for a second uh there probably are going to be more variants. I, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily going to eradicate, uh, you know, COVID from the world. There's going to be obviously the opportunity for this thing to morph into something else again. Uh, and there's, I guess there's increasing discussion now, but the fact that we may have to be looking at something like a, an annual vaccine, uh, not unlike what we did for flu shots, et cetera. Uh, is that work ongoing right now? Are they tracking how uh, these vaccines are working and what, how they might need to tweak us in the future to, to make it more effective? Yes, that work is ongoing. So, for example, Moderna and Pfizer are working on an updated version where they are in particular are looking at the uh, one of the variants, the, uh, I think that was Alpha, Beta, Gamma, <laughs> Gamma variant. So that was one that was first seen in South Africa. Here's mm -hmm. what they're trying to do. The flu vaccine gets updated every year, and it has a special regulatory process that's streamlined much quicker. So they're trying to see if it can do something similar for the coronavirus vaccine, if needed. That way they can create it and then get that into people because it's changing very little. And so the most of the vaccine is 
quite the same. It's just the mRNA instruction is slightly changed to better represent the variant of concern. And that's what we're going. Some companies are actually looking at doing a double. They're looking at giving you not just your flu shot, but also a coronavirus vaccine. Mm-hmm. And then that way, you just need the one shot and you're protected against seasonal flu and seasonal corona. So these are all things that these uh, producers are looking at to try to give better protection across the world. And that's interesting, and I think that that is something that we can look forward to. Doctor, always is a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Stay safe, everybody. You too. Dr. Omar Khan, of course, uh, from the University of Toronto. So what about these, these border restrictions that uh, we're being told now are going to be eased? Uh, there are some caveats to it, though. Joining us to talk about this is Mike McNaney, who is the president and CEO of the National Airline Council of Canada. Mike, appreciate you jumping on today. Hope you're doing well. I am, and thank you for uh, for having me on this morning. You've heard some of the uh, the things from Ottawa over the last couple of days about easing restrictions for travel now. Uh, uh, they they want to ensure that most people have that second dose. They're talking about vaccine passports and things of this nature. Uh, this is probably not the last part of this program as it's being rolled out here right now, but are you happy with the first steps that you've heard? It is a very small first step. It, it's yeah. a step in the right direction, but uh, it's a small step in that direction. Uh, we were certainly hoping that we would see more of the recommendations that were in the expert panel report that was released back on May 27 by Health Canada that looked at basically every single public policy issue that is attached to a safe reopening of international travel and aviation. Uh, So it looked at how you treat uh, fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, non-vaccinated, those who've been previously infected and, and exempt travelers. So yesterday's announcement was a a very small piece. It looked uh, on fully vaccinated only, and it did not do the other elements of the expert panel report with respect to fully vaccinated, which recommended that no quarantine be included and that no pre-departure test be required either. But as I said, it's it's a small step in the right direction. And certainly as an industry, we're going to continue to do all we can to try and get a bigger step in the right direction in the ensuing months. Yeah, well, even the panel last week that talked about, you know, the, the fact that the hotel quarantine was, it's, it's been a farce from the beginning, so why just, you know, carry on? But the, it's government, I suppose. I want to ask you to jump into the political weeds there, but as my perspective, they go so slowly sometimes when it comes to changes like this. What about the idea of the vaccine passport? That, that's something that I know a lot of politicians were a little nervous about when it first came up in the conversation five, six months ago. But it's kind of sounding right now, Mike, like it's probably going to be one of the main elements of this, because we're hearing about this in other countries. Uh, the, you know, the European nations are talking about this. The G7 conference coming up this weekend. Apparently, they're going to talk about it there too. Yeah, it, you're right. It will be a central element going forward for international travel. I think that the the political nervousness that that you're, you're referencing, I think that was more in the context of utilization of information for Mm -hmm. domestic activity, going to restaurants or hotels, whatever the case may be. From an international travel perspective, having to demonstrate that you have been vaccinated on whatever a country requires, that's always been uh, standard practice. So I think what we're seeing, and we have the G7 coming up uh, on Friday, I think what we are seeing is internationally there is certainly a coalescing around the realization we're going to need to have uh, uh, electronic proof vaccination. But in the interim, it's, it's going to take a bit of time before you can actually get all the jurisdictions of the world operating fully on electronic. I think in the interim, uh, we're going to have a, a need, a process that also recognizes paper. In Canada, we have this unique characterization of a 
the, the federal and provincial division of responsibilities. So the provincial governments, of course, uh, hold the information if you've been vaccinated and, and one, vac- one shot or two shot, whatever the case may be. So there, there is that ongoing conversation between the federal government and the provincial government, how they capture that information. But it, from, a, from a travel perspective, it, it's, you know, it's, it's well established, and I do think you will see that uh, moving forward. Well, uh, here's hoping that, as you say, this is a, a baby step, I guess, in the right direction, but there's a lot more conversation has to be headed. It's not as if they don't already have a prototype that they can work on. Uh, the recommendations are right there in front of them, and here's hoping that uh, you guys will be at the table when they get into the, the, these further discussions. Mike, thanks again for, for, for coming in here, and uh, hopefully this is the first of many conversations about us getting back to quote-unquote normal. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Take care. Mike McEnany, of course, uh, the National Airline Council president and CEO. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's a great news for uh, the city of Hamilton. Uh, the long debate, and I mean long debate, about what to do with the entertainment facilities uh, may well be at an end right now with a happy ending this time around. Uh, there has uh, been an agreement uh, reached between the city and the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group which is uh, essentially going to refurbish uh, the three main entertainment facilities in the downtown, uh, that being, of course, the arena, the First Ontario Centre Arena, the Concert Hall, and uh, the Convention Centre. Those seem to be the three major areas. Uh, Ryan McHugh, the city's manager of tourism events, says that they are going to work with the existing tenants in all of those facilities to minimize any construction impacts. Uh, this deal is certainly not conditional on LRT, but uh, you know, working around the impacts of uh, potential LRT construction, uh, you know, the HUPEG group, uh, not to speak for them, but based on uh, what's been communicated to city staff, they would, uh, you know, welcome the short-term pain of that for the longer-term benefits of getting people in and out of the core uh, to enjoy the great events at these venues. They are going to be, uh, from here on, mentioned as the HUPEG group. I love acronyms. It's fabulous. The Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, of which Carmen's uh, group is a member, and uh, PJ McCandy, the CEO of Carmen's group and a member, of course, of this committee, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, uh, explain to us exactly how this is going to work out. PJ, first of all, congratulations on finally getting uh, this done. I know you're not quite over the finish line yet, but it's certainly looking pretty good right now. Talk to us about the process, which I, I assume has been impacted by COVID because everything else has been. Sure. Thanks, Bill. It's certainly exciting for for our group and uh, and and company. And it's been a long process. You know, I, I got to give my uh, tip my hat to city staff uh, who worked with our group uh, over the last year and a half. And you know, as you may remember, last spring uh, we were in a uh, you know in a two horse race with Rancor, and, and and in the discussion of that MOU, uh, we had engaged with staff immensely, um, and then. Over the course of the past, let's say, 10 months, uh, as we've been working through the, the details in terms of the master agreements, uh, going over everything from the operating, uh, uh, you know, uh, details, uh, you know, potential renovation details, and the other business terms of the deal, I'm not exaggerating when I say we probably had in excess of 150 Zoom calls and, and, and calls with the with city team. So, so it's been a, a long process, uh, one where both sides have worked uh, immensely hard. Uh, Ryan McHugh, Ray Kessler, Al Dorf, and the city staff uh, and team, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're workhorses through this, and as, as, you know, has our team. So it's been a long, uh, a long time planning, but we know that getting across this finish line is the end of the beginning. Now the real work begins. Now is when we need to put the wheels in motion to start to execute on our vision and ambitions, and, uh, and over the course of the next, uh, next you know, eight, nine, ten months, We'll be putting some more of those plans uh, plans together, and then hopefully by mid 2022, uh, 
we're going to start some work uh, at the arena in terms of some of the renovation phasing. Uh, and we ultimately want to make sure that it doesn't impact or that, it, that the impact to the anchor tenants is minimal. Uh, and, and so we're, you know, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but we're ready to roll up our sleeves and to make some magic happen. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, because uh, we've been down this road before, PJ, when we're doing renovations, or in the case of the stadium, rebuilding on the exact same site of, of, of the old facility. And, and this is going to be, as you say, a makeover that's going to be happening at First Ontario Centre. Uh, it's, it's not going to get done in four or five weeks, obviously. Have you had discussions with Mr. Andlar and the Bulldogs about how this might be impacted, or are we discussing options here? Are they going to have to find another home for a period of time? What's, what's on the table now? So we've had many discussions with uh, with the Bulldogs, with Spectra, and, uh, and and some of the other tenants, and, and so we're going to work very collaboratively around around schedules to the best degree that we can, and try to you know ultimately ensure that uh, we could hopefully um, you know not have a you know season relocation. Uh, so so that's the goal. We're striving towards that. Ultimately, the phasing of different elements of the renovation will 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 drive that decision. And BBB architects, who are you know world round uh, arena renovation architects, are at the table with us, you know, discussing this issue with the various stakeholder groups, uh, the Bulldogs and uh, and Spectrum Live Nation has been a part of those uh, arena uh, discussions. And so they're at the table, and we will just obviously now that this master agreement is done. Uh, put the pedal to the metal in terms of the, the phasing and the timing. And, and we've got a bit of a head start, Bill, from the sense that, you know, back in 2015, 2016, one of our, one of our partners, Jasper Kajas, initiated the arena renovation study that got this whole thing really uh, going and, and put on this, the city's radar. Uh, and so, so we've got a lot of great, uh, you know, we've got a great runway and, and, and a great head start uh, as it relates to what to do with the arena and how to potentially solve for the, the construction phasing, uh, phasing issues. So we feel confident that we will have a, uh, a, great, uh, a great plan in place to, to make sure that we get the renovations done uh, with minimal impact to the existing operators and tenants. I just, I just want to try to put a face on, on your organization, on if we could. Uh, obviously, we know all about the Carmens and the group and, and the work that you've done, but uh, some of your other partners, of course, in uh, Hupega, the Leuna Pension Fund, uh, Fengate Capital, uh, Meridian Credit Union, Jetport Incorporated, and Paletta International. Uh, there's one, I guess, common thread through this whole thing, PJ. These are all companies and individuals, for that matter, who have already invested a considerable amount of money in the, in the greater Hamilton community over the last little while. Uh, how difficult or easy was it to get everybody together on this and say, look, at it, we, we've got a project that we, we can all contribute to? For sure. It, it, you know, I, I need to you know, give appreciation to the, the various, uh, various uh, members of the consortium. They've been committed to Hamilton for, for a long time, for, for decades and decades, and have many of them have built up uh, you know, many parts of Hamilton. You know, when you think of... Uh, the impact the UNA has had on James Street North, you know, had it not been for UNA Station, uh, that investment 20 years ago, and then the Lister Block investment. Uh, so those two strategically UNA investments have, uh, you know, have bookended the James Street North and been a part of the revitalization uh, of that corridor. And, and obviously there's been a, a number of other residential uh, investments they've made. So so we're grateful for, for them and the other uh, consortium members, uh, and 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 they all we all have a like-minded vision of uh, doing something special for Hamilton, something that is also 
uh, economically responsible. So there certainly has been, uh, you know, has been a, uh, a, a collaborated, uh, collaborative pursuit with them. Uh, you know, the number of meetings we've been on together has been uh, immense uh, throughout this process. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, we want to, to do our partnership proud and, and the city of Hamilton proud and ultimately uh, make the taxpayer of Hamilton proud. You know, this deal will save Hamilton taxpayers. Uh, I believe city staff said it will be $155 million over 30 years. Uh, and so we're delighted that we're delivering a win-win uh, as a group for the, the city uh, of Hamilton, for the taxpayers, and, uh, and that this is a model uh, public-private partnership that will be looked upon, uh, you know, for, for, for years and decades into the future. I want to talk about how that's going to happen, too, because that's important. Obviously, there's going to be some capital costs here for the renovations uh, to these facilities, and, and that's a substantial amount of money. But when you talk about – and, and there's, that's obviously going to be saving to taxpayers, too, because you're talking about capital dollars, and this is something the city's not going to have to worry about. But it's the operating costs uh, that usually are, are the, the, the linchpin in a situation like this, and, and I know that was something that had been negotiated. Uh, essentially, your group is taking over the operation and maintenance cost of all three buildings – uh, for well, at least 30 years, or possibly for 49, uh, and the number you just uh, highlighted here, which is going to be a saving to Hamilton taxpayers, uh, that's that was an independent study. Those aren't your numbers, are they? No, that was produced uh, in 2019 from Ernst and Young. So they did a, an entertainment facility review, uh, and so they had identified that over the next 30 years, the liability of these of these assets would be in that uh, in that you know number, uh, that 155 uh, million dollar number. And so, so, you know, we, uh, our group, uh, undertook, uh, you know, a deeper analysis into, into how to go about minimizing those liabilities uh, through, through investments uh, into the facilities and then through, uh, you know, different operating models that would yield, uh, would yield uh, you know, decent uh, returns and, and fair returns and margins. And so, so we've come up with, a, with an economic formula, uh, you know, this, as part of this transaction, uh, there will be some city-owned properties uh, that will be, uh, you know, transacted and and, and become part of, of of the HUPEC group that we will develop uh, with uh, mixed-use, best-use developments, uh, and uh, and so that's a key part of the transaction term. And the city's also putting into place a a new uh, special program, a tax incremental grant program that you know, with any new development we do on these city sites that. A portion of those uh, prop, those increased property taxes, would go into this grant program, and and we would use that for ongoing capital reserves, uh, ongoing operating stabilization uh, in the event of future disruptions like what COVID just did. So, so we've got a good, I believe, thesis, uh, a strong business thesis that makes sense for the city, makes sense for. Our group, uh, it's 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 a, it's a fair compromise in order to solve for the uh, the problem of these entertainment assets, and so we feel very confident that this business model is sound uh, and works uh, for all parties. It's a genuine win-win across the board. One of the things that makes it attractive for you and your partners, though, is, as you mentioned, is the other elements to this as well: uh, retail and office space, uh, re- residential units, of course. Uh, how confident are you in 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 the economy bouncing back like that, PJ. I mean, you don't want to, you know, build a nice tower and have nobody in it. Uh, we, we've got to, be, I guess, tread carefully in situations like that. But are you bullish about the fact that if you build it, they will come to to attract businesses to these buildings? 
Well, anecdotally, Bill, and, and fundamentally, we do believe that residential uh, development and residential investment is a strong uh, business case for the future, especially in Hamilton. Obviously, there's been a migration uh, from folks uh, in the GTA into the greater Hamilton area, uh, as prompted by COVID. Uh, and, 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 you know, we know that the city has uh, a goal of getting its population number up to 750,000 uh, by the year 2050. So 30 years, you know, a population increase of 200,000. Those 200,000 residents uh, need, need new, new homes, need new condos and apartments and places to live. And so, so you know, we feel very confident that over the, the next decade that there will be ample opportunity for, uh, for ensuring that we sell these condo units and, and, and rent out the various uh, apartment units that we will be, be building. Uh, and so we feel uh, very confident uh, in, in that. And coupled with the likely potential of LRT being a part of the, the mixed downtown, we feel very confident that, uh, that uh, transportation into the core will be uh, far easier than it's ever been. Uh, so we believe that the momentum that Hamilton is experiencing on the, on the residential front and the real estate front, uh, coupled with the other investments happening in Hamilton, just leads to a strong business case and a strong business model. We obviously won't overbuild on the commercial or retail elements of this project. We'll be smart and strategic with the percentage and, and allocation of retail and commercial. We know that residential is uh, is is where, you know, is, is the primary driver of that part of the economic model. And, and so we'll be responsible. We'll do things that make sense for the Hamilton market. You know, we do know that absorption in Hamilton in the past few months has uh, you know, blown away any historic data points and metrics. So we know that Hamilton over the course of the next three, five, ten years is going to experience unprecedented growth where historic data points mean nothing because the momentum that is, that is being experienced in Hamilton uh, from a development perspective, absorption perspective, and another real estate metric perspective is 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 unbelievable. I've only got a couple of minutes left here, and there's so much more to talk about. Obviously, this is going to be uh, the part one, I guess, of a number of discussions you and I are going to have over the, the future about this. Uh, just for the sake of our listeners, though, as we mentioned, it's going to be a, a, a remodeling of, of the arena. Uh, the this, this seating capacity is going to stay the same, essentially. Are they going to do something about that curtain above the top? Uh, it hopefully make it a, a world-class facility for the Bulldogs and for everybody else that uses it. Uh, let's talk about the convention center, though, for for the last couple of minutes here, PJ. Uh, the Carmen's Group has been involved with the convention center, partnering with the city for the last number of years. Uh, as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, this is no secret, I mean, it's a tired facility. Uh, there's an argument to be made that it's not a, a very attractive facility to attract conventions. That can be a real moneymaker for a community. Uh, if you've got a, a, a convention center that people want to gravitate to with all the other elements here. Uh, how do you work your magic on that particular facility? Well, so you're, you're absolutely right, Bill. It, it's it's a it's a, a tired facility, and it, it needs uh, needs a bit of TLC. And so we are going to be allocating ten million dollars uh, worth of capital uh, upgrades uh, and, and renovations and aesthetic enhancements. We will uh, be attempting not attempting. We will be uh, expanding the footprint of the building. We will be making investments into audiovisual components that will be a part of the convention world of tomorrow. Obviously. If you know, with, with all in-person events, there will now be a virtual component. So we're going to make sure that we make appropriate investments 
in technology, uh, in audiovisual capabilities. And we're going to make sure that we solve for some of the issues of the existing uh, facilities. So, you know, we recognize that the, the facade along King Street, uh, it's a bit of a canyon, uh, a dark canyon. So we're going to activate that and really make it come to life so that that way it's not a, not a bit of a, a, a dead corridor. Uh, and so we'll, we'll work collaboratively with the city uh, on, on solutions for that, with the Art Gallery of Hamilton as well. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that we brighten up Summers Lane and, and make that a more pedestrian-friendly and, uh, and, and illuminated space. So, so we do uh, genuinely, and, and we're super excited about moving on these plans, you know, in terms of uh, working on the aesthetic refreshes, working on some of the, the, the nuts and bolts investments, the, the, you know, the internal organs of the building need, uh, need some propping, you know, the elevators, escalators, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the electrical systems, things like that. The, the unsexy parts of the, of the uh, capital deployment, but necessary, you know, those are key infrastructure investments that need to be made. So, so we've got a plan, uh, you know, it's going to be sequenced right after the arena renovations are completed. So we want to focus on the arena first and then, you know, Towards the tail end of that, uh, you know, have the, the the wheels put in motion on the convention center. We are going to be st- uh, starting some um, immediate uh, renovations and enhancements in the in the lobby of the convention center before the end of this year. So something just to kind of get the ball rolling with regards to uh, to some enhancements at that venue. But but we're excited about uh, about that about the the fact that the convention center, the art gallery, the concert hall right across the street from the Sheridan. You know, there are some important community assets in that corridor that could be illuminated, brightened up, and, and you know, become something special that, uh, that the city is, uh, is appreciative of. So much more to talk about, as we mentioned, and uh, we'll pick up on part two and three as a, and four and so on as we go through this. Thanks so much for this, uh, and congratulations once again for cutting the deal with the city and getting uh, an agreement on this. Uh, the councillors I've talked to are pretty excited about this, and so are the staff, and I know that the people in this community are certainly looking for uh, the work to get started on this. PJ, thanks again for this. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. PJ McCanny, of course, from the Carmen's Group and part of the group, uh, the consortium that's going to be doing the renovations, the makeover, as it were, of the three major entertainment facilities downtown. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Ford government has taken the bold step of invoking the notwithstanding clause of the Constitution to overturn a court decision that was issued uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, the court decision uh, deemed that certain parts of the Election Finances Act were unconstitutional for limiting third-party advertising. But rather than complying with the ruling, uh, the government is uh, set to override the court with the, uh, the notwithstanding clause. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Paul Calandra. Paul is the uh, MPP, of course, for Markham Stouffville and also the Ontario government house leader. Uh, Mr. Calandra, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. Let's, uh, let's if we could, go, maybe, I, I know there's a debate that's about to happen, I guess, when you guys get back to work here in just a couple of days, and you're going to be calling the legislature back today. Explain to us the rationale behind uh, using the, the, the clause at this stage. Yeah, look, the, uh, what happened with the ruling was the uh, a few things, actually. So the, the, the judge did confirm that, uh, that spending limits were important and that they uh, uh, were constitutional, did confirm that they're not an infringement on people's... Uh, uh, constitutional rights of association, but as you clarified, it's it's a difference in in whether it's six months or twelve months. So that part of the ruling is where the judge focused on. But in so making that ruling, he in essence vacated the entire uh, uh, law that stood. So right now in the province of Ontario, 
There is absolutely no law with respect to controlling spending by third parties. We're back to where we were uh, prior to, to 2018, uh, a Wild West type of system. So that's why we're returning the legislature uh, uh, today, and we'll be sitting over the weekend to uh, uh, to put back in place uh, uh, controls over third-party spending in the province of Ontario. Would it have been an option to simply say, okay, we'll abide by the ruling and simply draft another piece of legislation that excludes the part that the judge took exception to? Yeah, again, so in his ruling, he, he, he did confirm those two very important pieces, that it, it that limits are, are indeed important, uh, that they don't infringe. And again, we believe, though, after having spent months uh, on the, the original legislation, uh, bringing it through the legislature committee hearings, that a 12-month spending... Uh, uh, or controls the 12 months leading up to the election are important. We did confirm in the legislation the highest spending limits leading up to an election of anybody in the country, and that includes the federal legislation. Uh, so we did confirm that, but we felt that the balance of that would be a 12-month uh, uh, period. Uh, so we are very, we believe very strongly that that is the right approach, and that's why we are uh, bringing back the, the legislature to confirm the 12 months and to also put in place the rules surrounding. Uh, the accountability measures that go with that. A couple of things about this, and I, I, I know the opposition parties will have their talking points on this, but there's some concern, and I'm just trying to glean this from some of the comments I've seen over the last uh, 12 hours or so, if you could, Paul. Uh, one of them, of course, is increasing individual spending limits, uh, which some people will construe uh, as a benefit to the to the progressive conservative party, in other words, uh, you're increasing that limit, uh, and people, of course, the the, the wealthier ones who can make those donations, uh, can, tend to exert a lot of government influence. That's one area. The other, of course, is there. There's the, the accusation that what your legislation is doing is basically stymieing uh, dissenting voices. In other words, you're, you're giving them less time and less money uh, to be able to express their dissenting voices of this government or any future government, for that matter, too. Uh, and of course, the result of those two concerns. Is a lot of people are saying, well, look, you're tilting the playing field in your favor here. Yeah, so let's deal with the, 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 the second one first. Sure, so okay. What we have done is, we, as I said, we have the highest spending limits uh, leading up to an election in the country, and that includes the federal government. So by comparison, uh, the federal government has spending limits leading up to an election of 550000 nationwide. The government of Ontario, our legislation has 600000 Now, per riding, so the amount that a third party can spend in my writing, our legislation has a $24,000 uh, uh, limit. Federal legislation has, uh, I think, 10500 uh, And bear in mind that during election, I, as the candidate, can spend about $100,000. Uh, so somebody can spend a significant amount of money uh, trying to influence the election in my writing. That is completely appropriate. It is part of a democratic process. That's why yeah. we retained those very, very high uh, spending limits, but moved it over the span of, uh, of a year. So we haven't taken that out. Uh, with respect to uh, what uh, other parties can spend, look, we all have limits as to what we can spend. There are very strict controls on what parties can spend uh, in elections, how we spend money leading up to an elections. I actually think it is appropriate that if people want to help a political party, help us win an election, they do it in a fair and accountable process by donating to a political party. So the limits are there. But I'll just add this other piece to it. We recognize, of course, that during uh, the last number of months, it had been very difficult for parties to raise money. Not so much for our party. We've done a good job of raising money. But the other two parties were uh, 
and the third party, the Green as well, were having significant challenges raising money in the lead-up to an election because of COVID restrictions and so on and so forth. We brought back the, per, the party subsidies to level the playing field amongst all of the, the operators so that we could, all, we could have a fair election uh, in, uh, in 2022. So the mechanisms are there to ensure a fair election between parties, and this, uh, by bringing back third-party controls, which were started really in 1997 by Prime Minister Kretchen, uh, furthered by Prime Minister Harper, and every other province has these uh, uh, restrictions uh, in place. Kathleen Wynne started that process in the province of Ontario. And I think if I could just end with this, it's, it's a fixture of what happens when a parliamentary democracy moves to a fixed election date, something that is not common in parliamentary democracies. We've moved to that. And to ensure that we don't have what they have in the United States around fixed election dates where it's a Wild West approach, uh, we are moving to ensure that that, across Canada, frankly, that that uh, is not the case in Ontario. The concern, though, and I know you certainly heard this during the debate of the initial legislation, yeah. that, for that matter, too, was was that you're ha- hand-tying third party. Uh, I, that's the political end of it. I get the political parties yeah. and the restrictions, uh, and that, that seems okay. But the concern they have is, what about these third party? And you know they're never citizen groups. Uh, and I, I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that they say, but I think they have a right to be part of the process right now. And they're feeling as 100% if they do. Yep. their feeling is right now is if you're tying their hands behind their back. Yeah, well, I, look, I, I, I believe that they have a, a, a right and, and frankly, in many instances, a responsibility to be part of, uh, of, of the debate. That is why we've confirmed the highest uh, third-party spending limits in the country for the province of Ontario, higher than the, the federal government uh, spending limits, which crisscross the entire country. So we think it is important. We don't want to take that aspect of it out. Uh, as I said, the Ontario is 600,000. Uh, a third party can spend um, province-wide, uh, 24,000 in each of the individual uh, uh, ridings. We think uh, that by extending it over the six months leading up to an election, it uh, provides a good balance and uh, an opportunity for third parties to decide at what point they want to participate in in, in advocating for their own positions. It doesn't stop anybody from... Uh, from advocating on policy issues as well, right? These are specific ads that have to do with, uh, are, are basically political ads in the lead up to an election. So there will be mm-hmm. many groups that will still participate advocating for policy positions uh, as well. And uh, as I said, I think we struck a good balance. And uh, I, frankly, I'm optimistic. I think other other provinces will start to move in this direction as well, given the fact that most of us have fixed election dates now. Uh, I know your time is tight, and I appreciate you jumping on with us for a few minutes to try to explain this. Uh, Paul Calandra, the Ontario Government House Leader, uh, thanks, uh, as always, for the time, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks so much. Anytime. Anytime. Take care. Paul Calandra, of course, he's also the MPP for Markham Stouffville. So uh, you've got the government explanation, and like I say, a lot of this is kind of a rehash of the uh, the, the, the point, talking points that they used uh, when this initial legislation was being debated in the legislature some time ago. Uh, and it was interesting that they would use this hammer, as some people are describing it, to try to, to jam this thing through, notwithstanding the fact that there are some legal concerns about this. Duff Conagher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this. Duff, I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, your thoughts on the, the move by the Ford government? Well, it's undemocratic, dictatorial, and unreasonable. And there's a reasonable way to move forward uh, instead of Doug Ford imposing his arbitrary 
limits uh, that he came up with off the top of his head and has real no justification for. And I just heard Paul Calandra, not surprisingly, given his uh, reputation and record in the past, misleading people concerning the limits. Uh, and uh, hopefully Doug Ford will back off and work with other parties to uh, set reasonable democratic limits in a reasonable democratic way. Do you agree with my contention that this really tilts the playing field in their favor? Uh, well, it, it does in terms of uh, the limits applying to any advertising about anything the government does between now and Election Day. And uh, that means that the government could do drastic moves in the fall on 10 big different issues, and any interest group would be uh, limited to spending $600,000 on all 10 of those issues and all election issues leading up over the next year. And um, that is essentially excessive, as the court ruled on Tuesday, an unconstitutional restriction on freedom of speech that's unreasonable and undemocratic. So uh, Doug Ford is acting in a dictatorial way, and he should back off and work with other parties to set reasonable limits. The Ontario limits are not the uh, uh, the uh, most generous, as Paul Calander claimed. It's not true at all. The federal limits, which only apply for July and August before an election campaign begins in uh, September, were $1 million over two months. And Doug Ford's setting a limit of $600,000 over 12 months. That's not more. I mean, just do the math which Paul Kalander doesn't seem to be able to do. Uh, that's not more generous. And, and the federal limits during the election campaign are $500,000, and in Ontario, they're $100,000. Well, Ontario is more than one-fifth of the total population in the country. So again, the federal limits are more generous than Ontario's. No one is saying limits aren't needed. Every single interest group, including sure. all the big unions, testified and said limits are needed. They just need to be set in a reasonable, democratic way. And there's a way of doing this instead of Doug Ford's dictatorial move. We could, I guess, get into the history of, of this whole thing when these things were negotiated many, many years ago, of course. Uh, and I know there are a lot of people that, that have some concerns about the notwithstanding clause and why it was even included uh, in, in the, the, the agreement that was done between the, the federal government and the provinces on this. Uh, and, and, and I don't want to get into the debate pro and con about this, but the fact is, is it, when it has been invoked or at least threatened to be invoked in the past, uh, it's usually in a situation like this where it's a government that gets their nose out of joint because the courts have ruled against them and they want to ram something through. It's not necessarily for the common good as they're trying to characterize what they're doing here. No, very much so. And I think it will be challenged, and I think there's a good chance the courts will rule what Ford is doing. Uh, his use of the notwithstanding clause is illegal and unconstitutional. It's not there, several constitutional experts agree, it's not there for a premier or prime minister to use whenever they want for whatever they want. It's restricted to a certain set of rights, first of all. Some rights cannot be overridden by the notwithstanding clause. And uh, otherwise, it can't just be an arbitrary action, which this is. You know, the, the, the Liberals set a limit of $600,000 over six months that third-party interest groups and individuals could spend on... Uh, uh, election-related advertising, essentially advertising vote for, vote against in the lead-up to an election. That was an arbitrary time period and an arbitrary amount, six months over 600000 Ford said, now it's 12 months, but same uh, amount, $600,000. Again, just totally arbitrary, taken pulled out of the top of his head with no study at all of what it costs to reach vote voters with TV, radio ads, or uh, social media ads. 
That's what needs to be done. That's the reasonable democratic way to go forward is work with the other parties, set up an independent commission over the next couple of months. They can do that study. It won't take long. You just call all the TV stations, radio, and social media and say, how much does it cost to reach all voters in Ontario with an ad campaign? That's, and that will be the limit. And that would limit would apply to any issue that a third, third party advertises on. And then, and then also they would be able to spend the same amount on a for or against ads. And it's a simple thing to do, a democratic and reasonable thing to do. And because Ford's acting in such an arbitrary and dictatorial way, one, I think you'll see interest groups, Democracy Watch is considering it as well, challenging this as an arbitrary use of the notwithstanding clause. And two, I think the courts will rule that it goes too far. It's too arbitrary and too dictatorial and unconstitutional itself. Uh, we got about a minute left here. What's the process on something like this, Duff? If somebody does file a challenge uh, against uh, his in- invoking the notwithstanding clause, there is an election coming up about 12 months from now. Uh, does this drag through the courts? Is this something that can be ruled on expeditiously? Yeah, the courts usually expedite situations like this where if we're going to have limits, you know, obviously the, t- the clock is ticking. So you have to settle it soon. And as with this court case, right, the, this court case was filed in May when the new limits came in, mm-hmm. and it was heard and ruled on on June 8th. So that was one month. So, you know, that that could be done by September. We could have a court ruling on whether this not, use of the notwithstanding clause is unconstitutional. Given Ford, looks like from all we've heard, he's going to ram it through tonight or tomorrow. Yeah, it seems that way from uh, the time frame I've seen on this. But uh, as they say in the business, uh, it ain't over till it's over. And it looks like there's more to come on this stuff. Very much so. And Democracy Watch is looking to participate. I'm already uh, contacting lawyers this morning to to uh, see. But again, several constitutional experts believe that uh, the notwithstanding clause cannot just be used in an, in an unconstitutional, arbitrary, dictatorial way. Uh, Duff, thanks for jumping in with us today. I, I've certainly more conversations to come on this as this uh, starts to unravel over the next little while. Appreciate it. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Yes, I'll keep you updated, and take care, and stay safe. Please do. Thank you. Duff Conagher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch, uh, expressing their concern, as many other groups, uh, several liberties groups and others, uh, about uh, the rights being taken away. or as That's their perception of it anyway, with the Ford government invoking the notwithstanding clause. Uh, they, they're going to be called back to the legislature to do this, and, of course, there's going to be some debate that goes on there with the opposition parties. And, uh, and, and sometimes that can just be white noise. I get that. I'm more concerned and, and paying attention to some of the legal voices right now that are just saying, whoa, wait a second here so we'll see just who's going to do what and what the results are going to be the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the bill kelly podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you get your podcast from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml i'm bill kelly thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review